Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This event is part of the Intermarium Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. This evening, we'll be hearing from Dr. Emily Finley. Dr. Finley holds a PhD in political theory from the Catholic University of America and is currently a postdoctoral scholar in political science at Stanford University. Her research interests include political ideology, international relations, epistemology, religion and politics, and intellectual history. Dr. Finley, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you, Ms. McGann, and thank you to the Institute of World Politics for hosting this event. My talk today, um, The Theory and Practice of Women's Liberation in Revolutionary State Building, uh, this is a comparison of the Soviet hujum, the Chinese Communist Party marriage reforms, and the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan and Iraq. Women's liberation is a concept that is almost always found at the heart of revolutionary thinking. From Plato's Republic to the millenarian religious sects in the wake of the Radical Reformation, to the Soviet communists in Russia and its satellite states. Plato, in devising his ideal republic, quickly discovers that marriage and the nuclear family are hindrances to the perfectly just state. The institution of the family as the harbinger of private morality poses an obstacle to the universalist philosophies of justice that conceive of a singular public morality. Here, I examine the concept of women's liberation as it relates to revolutionary state building using these three historical examples. Scholarship generally attributes the failure of each of these programs to the subordination of women's liberation to the larger ideological mission of state building. However, examining these episodes in comparison reveals that women's liberation is in fact essential to the political program. Examining the relationship between the theory of marriage and the family that underpins these revolutionary efforts and its concrete practice helps to illuminate the connection between women's liberation and revolutionary state building. One of the assumptions of existing scholarship is that if women's liberation had been pursued for its own sake, rather than as a part of a larger mission, it would have fared better and possibly succeeded. The findings of this work challenge that assumption and contend that in these instances, the regimes did not treat women's liberation as ancillary to a larger mission. And rather, they fully believed that the success of women's liberation would greatly contribute to the success of the new regime. And they devoted vast resources to that effort. The failures of these campaigns demonstrate the real dangers of liberating women as part of a revolutionary social program. Given the predictably disastrous results, we must ask if the final revolutionary vision of society forcibly reconstituted along gender lines is a sound one. This study also sheds new light on US operations in the Middle East. 
suggesting that the U.S. effort to build democracy shares with revolutionary communism the normative belief that disrupting traditional gender norms is an important step toward building a new regime. It might at first seem unwarranted to compare U.S. actions and rhetoric on the issue of women's equality in the Middle East to the policies of two 20th century communist regimes. There are, after all, many obvious differences. However, there are some striking similarities between the U.S. foreign policy vision and strategy toward women in Afghanistan and Iraq, on the one hand, and the vision and tactics of the Russian Soviets and Chinese communists toward women, on the other hand. These case studies have been chosen in order to demonstrate that among otherwise diverse cultures and historical contexts, there is considerable overlap of philosophical assumptions and practical consequences. These findings have contemporary relevance for policymakers considering the role of women's empowerment and its relation to foreign policy and state building efforts. I'll begin by very briefly outlining the theoretical foundations of women's liberation in the thought of Marx and Engels. In October 1918, almost immediately after the Bolsheviks assumed power in Russia, the Central Executive Committee of the Soviet Union issued a law on marriage, the family and guardianship, which aimed at the withering away of the family. The Bolshevik and outspoken women's rights advocate Alexander Kollontai stated that women's maternal and familial duties would go the way of private property and become public responsibilities. Following Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, the Soviets and CCP believed that modern social organization rooted in the nuclear family represented a holdover of a bourgeois and feudal past. The eradication of the family and the socialized care of children would, according to Engels, remove all the anxiety about the consequences of free love. Hoping to ensure that women were given equal opportunity with men for building socialism, Marx and Engels imagined that in the new communist stateless society, traditional divisions of labor based on gender and the family would become obsolete. The Hujum was the name of the Soviet campaign in Central Asia that sought to put these ideals into practice. Hujum translates as assault or attack, and that is precisely what the Soviets tried to do to the traditional Islamic institutions surrounding marriage and the relations between the sexes. It consisted of legal, social, educational, and economic measures to encourage women to work and socialize outside of the home and to participate in communist party activities while abandoning traditional Islamic practices. This multi-pronged operation aimed toward the modernization and Sovietization of Islamic culture. Following Marx and Engels, the Hujum sought to push Muslim women into the industrial economy, which would emancipate them financially and break down taboos against integration of the sexes. Women were given vocational training and those who excelled in school were promoted to positions of authority and into the sciences, medicine, and the academy. For the Soviets, getting women to work outside of the home and in the national economy was essential for accelerating the historical dialectic toward communism. The Chinese Communist Party followed a similar path as it employed Soviet tactics to break down traditional Chinese marital and gender norms. The Chinese Soviet constitution of 1931 promised the thorough emancipation of women and women's departments formed throughout China as they had in Central Asia in order to promulgate the marriage law and to encourage women to make use of it. 
1950, the Chinese Communist Party issued the marriage law, although it probably should have been called the divorce law. This extended and broadened the earlier decree. For the first time in China, women could legally divorce their husbands and they would retain their property rights. The law even went so far as to stipulate that the ex-husband must provide for his ex-wife until she found another husband. The effect was that women were encouraged to divorce their husbands, and many did as an act of political liberation, encouraged by the communist cadres. In a very different context, in 2001, the United States began its mission to liberate Muslim women in Afghanistan and Iraq following the invasions. This move, like the Soviet and CCP campaigns, was tied to a desire to transform the Middle East culturally and politically. Behind these interventions was the belief of the Bush Doctrine, that America could usher in global democracy by way of Afghanistan and Iraq. The Bush Doctrine disparaged classic definitions of national interest in favor of a revolutionary and more enlightened universalist ideology of humanitarian interventionism. These beliefs were supported by a philosophy of history that imagined democracy to be the final historical stage, quote, the cause of all mankind, in the words of George W. Bush. The will to freedom exists universally, the neoconservative personality Charles Krauthammer said, and is, quote, the engine of history. The United States, it was imagined, could serve a special role in the unfolding dialectic of freedom which could be hastened by military and political intervention. Like the Soviet ethos, the Bush Doctrine professed the belief that American ideals and practices are not culturally and historically contingent, but expressions of an idea that can be universalized and transplanted. Supported by these philosophical con convictions, the US attempted the military overthrow of the Afghan and Iraqi regimes and the implementation of Western-style democracy through legal, educational, and cultural reforms. The liberation of Muslim women was to be one major component of awakening the slumbering democratic consciousness of Middle Easterners. In a radio address in November 2001, First Lady Laura Bush declared, the fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. The United States spent millions of dollars on women's programs in Afghanistan and Iraq. And while the U.S. did not attempt to initiate unveiling campaigns or to legislate directly on family life, it encouraged women to leave the home through various entrepreneurial, educational, and political measures backed by enormous funding, something the Soviets and CCP lacked. Women working outside of the home and participating in the public economy or the free market was assumed to contribute to the formation of a new political ethos characterized by freedom and equality. Not unlike Marx and Engels, the Bush Doctrine implicitly assumed that material conditions could greatly impact, even determine, the social and political character of the nation. In addition to the economic and material aspect of the respective women's liberation campaigns, there was a strong need to educate women in the principles of the new regime, which would, it was believed, aid in women's direct political participation and activism. The Soviets and CCP tried to normalize new gender relations through indirect educational efforts, such as family evenings, events in which men and unveiled women were to socialize together and listen to lectures. The Bush administration, on the other hand, was less aggressive in its approach, but similarly hoped to break down existing gender norms in an attempt to fundamentally change the character of the regime. In 2004, Colin Powell announced the creation of 
the Iraqi Women's Democracy Initiative, a $10 million project, which according to Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs, Paula Dobryansky, was to help women become full and vibrant partners in Iraq's developing democracy. One of the recipients of a grant from the initiative expressly aimed to give women, quote, a better understanding of the universal principles of democracy. The desire to educate women in the universal principles of democracy resembles at least the ideological component of the Soviet and CCP literacy campaigns, which provided an education to women, albeit in the principles of Soviet communism. These campaigns were, according to official records, a smashing success, but they did not come without cost. In 1926, a year before the hujum was launched in Uzbekistan, the Arabic script began to disappear from official usage and slowly be replaced by the modern international Latin alphabet. Thus, women and men who became literate under the new system could read only Soviet literature and were effectively cut off from their patrimony. The Chinese communists similarly fully expected the spread of literacy to assist in its mobilization and control of the peasants through training and bureaucratic and economic rationalization, for example. The Bush administration tailored its educational efforts toward the universal principles of the regime. Civics courses were eliminated altogether in 2003 for their pro-Saddam bias of the textbooks. One program translated into Arabic, American classics such as Tom Sawyer, The House of the Seven Gables, and Of Mice and Men, to the befuddlement of locals. In Afghanistan, the U.S. purchased some 10 million textbooks for children and 4,000 teacher training kits. The ideological motives behind U.S. funding had a tremendous effect on women's organizations in general and the types of education programs that would be sponsored by grant funding in particular. The $10 million allocated to the Iraqi Women's Democracy Initiative stipulated that the recipients of the grants must include the training of trainers leadership training, political training, teaching entrepreneurship, and other activities. In addition, the de-Ba'athification of Iraqi society removed teachers who had been members of the Ba'ath party, while U.S. grant programs helped to get women who had been trained in the universal principles of democracy into those teaching positions. Many Iraqi women activists in the diaspora at the time were critical of the way the priorities of Iraqi women's organizations had been shaped by U.S. funding rather than the needs of ordinary Iraqi women. And they accused these sponsored programs as being designed to help, quote, sustain a global neoliberal economic order. This top-down approach approximated the Soviet and CCP belief that the dissemination of the new ideology was paramount to consolidating power and overturning the old ways. The U.S. also suffered from many of the same setbacks, especially reliance on a largely inexperienced managerial cadre. While the U.S. did achieve some short-term goals for women, such as their political representation and limited economic achievement, it's unclear the extent of the benefits to local women. Documents from the State Department archives are peppered with language about enabling participation, building alliances, and developing human rights advocacy skills. But these do not reveal the concrete outcomes of these extensive programs. Their now defunct status would suggest their futility. We must wonder if accounts such as former U.S. Foreign Service officer Peter Van Buren's are representative. Van Buren recalls that because, quote, freeing women from their oppression got tied into the overall idea of liberating Iraq, 
and ranked high on our collective agenda, well-funded but unproductive events were held to promote women's rights. One expensive event simply devolved into a belly dancing affair, he recounts, for the 180 women present after all of the men had departed after lunch. Overall, the condition for women was made much worse after the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghan women remained cut out of the political decision-making process and suffered from lack of basic health care, food, shelter, and security. In Iraq, the situation was much the same. The bombing campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq destroyed infrastructure and emptied the major cities of women. In Iraq, in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion in 2003, armed groups roamed the streets of Baghdad. The risk of kidnapping, sexual assault, bombings, and assassinations became so high that families often refrained from allowing women and girls to leave the house alone, attend school, or go to work. At the height of the sectarian violence in 2006 and 2007, women were kidnapped, raped, and killed daily. The imposition of Soviet and communist rule on Uzbekistan and China, respectively, triggered its own upheaval, generally in the form of conservative backlash. In China, the spiking divorce rates generated tremendous social instability. Unhappy male family members retaliated against women exercising their newfound rights. Many communist cadres were instigators of the violence against women, using their power and weaponry given them by the CCP to wield lethal force against divorce petitioners. The crimes are almost too gruesome to mention. Examples abound of the horrific torture and murder of women trying to obtain divorce, refusing a betrothal, courting a lover in public, or becoming politically active in the name of women's rights. In 1953, the Ministry of Justice estimated that nationally, 70 to 80,000 women had been murdered or forced into suicide each year since 1950 as a result of family problems and mistreatment. The Central Committee of the CCP attributed these crimes to, quote, the influence of feudal thoughts, but could do little to stop them. The situation for women in Soviet Central Asia followed a similar trajectory. Thousands of women were murdered during the hijum, with estimates from 2,000 to tens of thousands. Husbands or family members often perpetrated crimes of rape, murder, even mutilation against women who had, quote, debauched themselves or dishonored the family by unveiling or otherwise participating in their liberation. The violence against women reached such a level that in 1929, two years after the start of the hujum, party officials decided to scale back the assault for liberation. Yet the Soviet regime argued that such violence revealed the need for Soviet liberation from the backward society rather than liberation from its policies. However, as one scholar points out, the violence that took place during this time was not simply an impassioned response to the Soviet intrusion into family and social life, but a result of the general breakdown of society and the old norms under warlike conditions brought on by the Soviets. The breakdown of the Islamic social, political, and moral order meant not the proliferation of a new Soviet society and morality, but the breakdown of order altogether. U.S. efforts to liberate women differed markedly in many respects from those of the Soviets in Uzbekistan and the CCP in China. The U.S. relied to a much greater degree on material resources, while the Soviets and CCP relied more heavily on legislation, propaganda, struggle sessions, and forced social engineering. However, all three believed that liberating women from traditional Islamic gender structures was a crucial component of regime change. 
They believed that Muslim women working outside of the household was an essential precondition for the unfolding of a new order of social and even ontological existence. For the Soviets and the CCP, common ownership of the means of production was expected to dissolve class distinctions and animosity and result in an entirely new society composed of new Soviet men and women. For the Bush administration and other neoconservatives, the US was to act as a vanguard in the creation of a new democratic people in the Middle East. Forms of social and political existence other than democracy were expected to become outmoded, discarded in the trash heap of history. Quote, the force of human freedom is the only one force of history that can break the reign of hatred and resentment and expose the pretensions of tyrants and reward the hopes of the decent and tolerant, George W. Bush said in his second inaugural address. The American media beamed with confidence that democracy would take hold in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Afghan constitution, quote, heralds democratic era and charter sets presidential system with minority and women's rights, stated one New York Times headline representative of this attitude. An excerpt from an article in Business Week magazine from December 3rd, 2001 is worth recalling. Quote, the scenes of joy in the streets of Kabul evoke nothing less than the images of Paris liberated from the Nazis. Women taking to the streets to bask in the Afghan sun, free at last to show their faces. Children gathering to fly kites, a once forbidden pastime. Old people dancing to music banned for many years. The liberation of Afghanistan from the tyranny of the Taliban is a watershed event that could reverberate for years. The warm embrace by ordinary people of the freedom to do ordinary things is a major victory for Western humanist values." End quote. Pursuing policies of instability through the destruction of inherited traditions and local ways of life was a tactic that the Soviets, the CCP, and the George W. Bush administration alike believed would accelerate history toward a particular foreordained political outcome. The prophecy of George W. Bush of a coming global democratic revolution when seen in this context is not altogether different from Lenin's or Mao's belief in the imminence and inevitability of global communism. The spectacular failure of these three women's liberation campaigns suggests the problematic nature of the underlying theories that motivated them. The expectation that radical top-down dismantling of an inherited social order aided by radical social engineering programs or grant programs will result in the growth of another better social system lacks empirical support. On the contrary, the sudden and violent destruction of inherited ways of life for particular people seems to have the opposite effect, resulting in repressive measures, authoritarian government or martial law or full-scale civil war among rivaling factions. In the cases studied here, the loss of the traditional way of life and the disruption of the relations between the sexes, however destructive those might have been beforehand, generated additional difficulties for women and children. The evidence from these three case studies suggests that social and political instability generates the worst possible situation for women, regardless of previous institutional injustices against them. One problematic aspect of Soviet doctrine and the Bush doctrine vis-a-vis -vis revolutionary women's liberation appears to be an over-reliance on abstract thinking. Marxist-Leninist and even Lockean and Rousseauian theories of marriage 
imply universality through their use of abstract theorizing. These philosophies, secular and rationalistic understandings of marriage as a contract or bond secured in romantic feelings between free and equal persons is not a belief shared among all cultures. Any program to emancipate women must take seriously concrete historical and cultural conceptions of marriage and the relations between the sexes. Outside actors attempting to alter the institution of marriage through a political and philosophical reframing tends, this research suggests, to threaten social stability, a factor that directly affects the outcome for women. Ultimately, intimate personal unions and relations are complex and culturally contingent and not easily manipulated despite professed, professed nobility of intentions. The policies that the Soviets and the Chinese communists on the one hand and the George W. Bush administration on the other pursued were largely consistent with the philosophies of marriage of Marx and Engels and Locke and Rousseau respectively. We can assume that these regimes put forth their best efforts toward liberating women given that their respective understandings of marriage are intimately connected with their overall conception of freedom, equality, and a new egalitarianism. Islamic gender relations and family structure are ultimately incompatible with Marxism-Leninism's belief in radical egalitarianism and collectivism, just as they appear to be incompatible with the Lockean belief in a free and equal and dissolvable contract between romantically interested partners. For this reason, despite the general assumption of some scholars, we can assume that US efforts toward the liberation of Muslim women was in earnest, rather than merely a rhetorical ploy to galvanize support for the invasions, although it certainly had that effect. The women's liberation campaign instead was an essential part of the program to overturn the old ways and to implement an entirely new way of life. As the US considers its strategy toward promoting women's rights globally and encouraging the participation of women in political processes, it would do well to consider the pitfalls of previous national campaigns at women's liberation. The United States strategy on women, peace and security of 2017 has been motivated in part by the observation that there is a correlation between women's status in a country and the country's political stability. Approaches to this challenge historically have sought first women's liberation in order to create political stability. But the research of this paper indicates that perhaps stability ought to be sought first, which would then benefit women. Policies toward women's liberation ought to have at the forefront the desire to create and maintain social stability rather than its opposite. That concludes the remarks of my talk. Thanks for your attention and I'll turn things back to Ms. McGann so that she can open up comments or questions? Yeah, um, if you guys have any questions, please feel free to comment in the Q&A portal at the bottom of the screen. Um, okay, we have a question here. Regarding the normalization of the sexes, I cannot help but be reminded of the 1984 and the purge of sexual relations for party affiliation. As a Russian musicologist, my question for you is how does this correlate to America in the 21st century? Specifically, modern societies call for the emancipation of the old and codified marriage gender roles, traditional masculinity and femininity. My research has shown a clear movement towards a normalization of futurist anti-traditionalism, referencing Yuri Bezmenov's four stages of subversion. 
Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I'll have to get a transcript of it after. Um, yeah, I've recently come across Bezmanov's um, comments, especially in light of recent events. Uh, I think that there are certainly implications of this research for um, modern women's liberation campaigns domestically in America. Um, and that was something that I was kind of afraid to touch on in the paper because it, it goes a little bit outside of the parameters here, but those are certainly there because the um, Marxist-Leninist interpretation of marriage as ultimately trying to eradicate the family, trying to socialize childcare, um, that, and, and also the Rousseauian and Lockean understanding of marriage and the relation between the sexes, that, that has something in common and anticipates those, those two philosophers in a way anticipate um, this Marxism and Leninism, under, Marxist-Leninist understanding of marriage. Um, and it's, it's pretty radical. It's a, it's a break from the traditional Western Christian understanding of, of marriage and the relations between the sexes. Um, and I think we can see that radical understanding if either you can look to Rousseau or you could look to Marx and Marx and Lenin and you could see that playing out in America, you know, starting in the 60s. Um, and, and we see it today with, uh, with radical um, attempts to dismantle the traditional family structure and, and those radical attempts being a major component of, a, of, a, of an entire political program that itself is revolutionary. And so I think looking at these attempts at women's liberation or any kind of reconfiguration of the relations between the sexes or reconfiguration of marriage and the nuclear family, it shouldn't be viewed in isolation. I mean, if it is following this pattern that I'm identifying here, it's, it's part of a more of a, of a larger political program and it's an, an integral part of that political program. And that is why um, we see it focused on to such an ex to such extent. Thanks. Um, another question here. How can you incentivize humane treatment of women of women without backlash from centuries old traditions? Yeah, that that was something that bothered me as I was um, researching this paper, because that's the obvious question is clearly these women in traditional Islamic societies and in um, in China prior to the the communist the chinese communist party were were certainly subjected to some very brutal practices we would consider backward um and so the question is how could life be made better for them um and i think that the research that i've done has shown me the way that life cannot be made better for them which is through these radical um whole of state approaches toward their quote unquote liberation. I think that um, an interesting foil might be to look at, at places where the lives of women has been made materially better um, and how that has taken place. I suspect that it's probably through grassroots initiatives that start at the local level where the concrete needs of women are taken into account and the programs are are designed by the women who are affected by them. And so these women um, obviously are sensitive to their own culture and to the cultural taboos and 
probably find innovative ways to work within those cultural parameters and to find ways to slowly or incrementally bring about positive change for themselves. That's how I suspect things could be made better for them. And, you know, I don't think that the implications of my research don't preclude outside funding or any kind of outside help or grant initiatives, but when the outside help is um, as a part of regime change, it's probably not going to benefit the local women very much. Another question, which of the three campaigns that you discussed has had the biggest impact on society? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, there's, I think, vast research out there on uh, post-Soviet Uzbekistan and um, how women are faring in China in the wake of these reforms. Um, and I would say that uh, the U.S. probably had the smallest footprint um, in the region because we, we did not embark upon the same sustained uh, social engineering program that the Soviets and the Chinese communists did. Um, but trying to trace the ways in which these programs have played out is very difficult. Um, there were some positive effects for all in all three of these case studies, you know, women were benefited in some limited ways. And it's just, it's hard to say um, as, uh, it, it's hard to say in hindsight how, how these women have been impacted specifically by these um, programs after decades and decades. Okay, we'll give it, I don't see any more questions on the doc, but we'll give it a few seconds to see if anyone submits anything else. All right. Um, I don't see any more questions. Um, so I would just like to thank Dr. Emily Finley uh, for joining us this evening. And all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Finley.